0: welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on what is now our 64th episode. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, before we get into today's Q&A episode, just wanted to put out a quick reminder that if you guys do enjoy these episodes, please feel free to take a screenshot post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag The Bodybuilding Dietitians. And if you are interested in hearing about our coaching services, you can always head over to our website, which is www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. And you can also find it down in the show notes below or any of our Instagram bios. And if you'd like to see us in video format, you can always search The Bodybuilding Dietitians on YouTube. So without further ado, we're gonna get into today's fantastic Q&A episode. And to kick it off, the first question, this one says, does it make a difference if you get your steps in all throughout the day or all at once?
1: So this is an interesting question and I think to an extent, it's fairly normal for people to do a large component of their steps at one time, especially if they have a large target to hit like 12K or above. And there definitely are a few points that we can make in terms of the nutritional and physiological concerns or just points in general regarding getting all your steps in at once. And I think realistically, that's that's not going to be the case anyway, because we still need to walk throughout the rest of the day, Mm -hmm. but let's just say like 85 to 90% of your daily steps.
0: Yeah, I know. So that would certainly be the case for someone who, yeah, if they had a 12,000 step target, you know, but they work a quite sedentary job, either in the morning or in the afternoon they might just set themselves like you know an hour of time to just go on a big walk and just you know get a bunch of those steps done because they know that they're going to be sitting for the rest of the day so it probably is quite applicable to quite a few people
1: Mm, and i'm sure a lot of people do it so it's not it's not that rare i think the way the question is phrased it seems like oh wow it's quite out of the ordinary for this to happen but for the average person who works like is reality.
0: Yeah, certainly. And so I guess if we're thinking about it from a nutritional standpoint, you know, when we are doing just any form of physical activity and, you know, light activity such as steps, the great thing about that is that, you know, it stimulates the GLUT4 receptors on our muscle cells to come to the cell surface and then that can help with carbohydrate mobilization because those GLUT4 receptors are there and they can take up glucose from the bloodstream. So for example, after you've just eaten a meal and your blood glucose levels are raised, you know, you can more easily take up glucose into your muscle cells. And that would be insulin independent because normally if we eat a meal, you know, and our blood glucose levels rise, and we aren't, you know, immediately going out and doing activity, the normal response is for our pancreas to release an appropriate amount of insulin, and then insulin goes into our bloodstream, stimulates those glucose 4 receptors to come up to the cell surface and take in that glucose. So it could certainly help from a carbohydrate, you know, mobilization point of view. So for example, Every single time after you eat a meal or a snack during the day trying to put in a little bit of effort to you know Go at least for like a maybe five or ten minute walk after that meal that might be helpful
1: Yeah, it's definitely a good point to make and to outline the the uh, biochemistry behind it But I think we both know that in reality for a healthy person So the majority of people who are listening to this who have a normal body fat we that's what insulin is for to in order to storage hormone it stores carbohydrates so we don't need to do exercise after eating but of course it can help and it can make sure your blood glucose levels um goes back to um, to a normal range after eating and so it's definitely no harm but it probably will do more good than than nothing if that makes sense (laughs)
0: That's probably just me getting a little bit sidetracked as usual, I digress, but okay. I guess a good analogy for this question would be, you know, we get asked all the time, you know, like what, what is your opinion on fasting? You know, what if I don't eat throughout the entire day and then I just eat a big meal at night? Right? Well, that's almost kind of similar to this question because we're saying, okay, what if I'm sedentary for the majority of the day? But then, you know, for like an hour of the day, I'm super duper active. So when we think about this, we do have to think about, you know, what matters most that's happening within the 24 hours of a day. And of course, you know, the main thing it would come down is to your total daily energy expenditure, or if you were thinking about food, your total daily food intake. Obviously, that will matter most. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the most optimal way to go about things.
1: Yes, so I think I know what you're getting at. And one of the points physiologically that we can make is that, let's say, just like in a prolonged energy deficit, you do adapt to the amount of food that you're eating. I think we can, I think we're being slightly hypothetical here, but we do believe that you'll adapt the longer you walk as well. And part of that also come it has to do with the heart rate as well. So in order to, it's sort of like a fuel efficiency in a car. So when you're going from stopping to starting, that's when you use the most fuel in a car. However, when you're driving along a highway at the same speed, you'll lose, use less fuel. And I think we can apply that to uh, walking at a steady state as well. So if you're continuously walking at the same pace, I think we can say that you will use less energy as opposed to having to stop and start and getting heart rate back up to a higher amount.
0: Yeah, I think that is such a good point because obviously when you start walking, you know, your heart rate goes from resting up to that certain amount, however many beats per minute that is unique to you, but then it should stabilize there. So, and if you were to maintain that certain amount, you know, for whatever, like an hour or something, and then let it come right back down. Overall, that might actually burn a little bit less energy. If you do do it in that big chunk compared to, let's say you were to go for maybe three medium medium-sized walks per day in order to get your steps up. And you would still have to put your body through, you know, getting up to that higher heart rate level.
1: Mm. Yeah. It's, it's almost not worth talking about how little energy you would expend <laughs> in difference. Like it's so little.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I think, you know, if, if I were to, if a client did ask me and they're like, Hey Thierry, you know, should I just do all 10 or 12,000 steps at once and then chill out like for the rest of the day? Or would you recommend breaking it up? I would be a bigger advocate for breaking up your steps because I just, I really strongly believe in, you know, moving the body throughout the day, the body was made to move. And I think it's very, very healthy, you know, to get up and move around and not be sedentary for very, very long periods of time, you know, and the literature certainly supports this as well. You know, people generally have a higher quality of life, you know, a lower risk of injury and, you know, they have better posture and just better cardiovascular health when they generally are more active throughout the day, just doing light activity.
1: Yeah, I can't disagree with that. I, I think it is beneficial to, I think ultimately, like you said, just like the fasting thing that the, the total amount that you're doing or the total quantity is the most important factor, but then we can look to distributing it throughout the day. And yeah, I think in order to discuss it in, in more depth and provide like more evidence, we would have to, do some more research on this one. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. But an interesting question to say the least. (laughs) All right. So moving on to this next question. So this one says, apparently only one kilogram of extra muscle burns 13 calories per day. Is this true? Is it true, Jack?
1: Yes, it is fairly well established that having more muscle. So having one kilo of extra muscle, you only burn an additional 13 calories and well, in that ballpark at least. And yeah, the tricky situation is that obviously larger bodybuilders, like you see a bunch of like, whether they be natural or enhanced athletes, the bigger they are, usually the the larger amount of food they have to eat, which isn't always the case. But usually if someone's like 15 kilos heavier, they're going to be eating more food. So It does beg the question, why is this the case if having extra muscle really doesn't account for much?
0: Yeah, I do think it's a super interesting topic because, yeah, everyone used to think like, oh, if you have more muscle, you know, it's boosting your metabolic rate. You know, you're probably burning an extra 500 calories per day if you just have a little bit more on you. But yeah, it it certainly doesn't come down to the muscle. So what do you think that it comes down to?
1: So again, this is more theoretical and like slight speculation on our behalf, but we do have a fairly good idea at what is going on behind the scenes. And there I think there is quite a large variability in terms of an individual's metabolism and how they differ from their set point and body weight. So someone who let's say, and I don't really like using this terminology, but let's say someone's body really likes being 80 kilos (laughs) and they go above 80 kilos. And yeah, immediate, not immediately, but their, their body responds by increasing their core temperature to burn more calories, um, increasing need. So tapping more, moving their feet more, etc., to try and increase energy expenditure in order to lose weight and someone's metabolism might also be more adaptive as well. And yeah, to be honest, like using myself as a case study, like that's kind of where this stems from in believing that because. Uh, I know people who, who require even more energy than me, um, to, to, uh, to, to gain weight and yeah, I think that is one piece of the puzzle. And the other factor that is, needs consideration is muscles are only about 25% efficient. So therefore the more muscle you have, uh, the, and the more work that needs to be done in the gym or even just moving in general, you would expect that more energy would be required in that aspect as well, because I'm pretty sure the, the 13 calories um, per day is referenced as muscles at rest, not muscles doing activity. And I think, yeah, the big part of that is muscles are only about 25% efficient. So they're not very efficient.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, and it certainly reminds me of uh, exercise physiology when we learned that our muscles aren't very efficient. And
1: <laughs> It was actually biomechanics.
0: It was biomechanics? Yeah. Oh, damn. Oh, well, biomechanics. But, you know, it kind of shows that the better bodybuilder you are, that the less efficient you are, so... Mm.
1: That's very good.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a good point, because, you know, it's not so much about you know, just having more muscle on you and at rest that you're going to burn a bunch more calories, right? Because we know that's not true, but I really do think that it does come down to neat. Just like you said, the body, you're just more inclined to move more. And then we also have to consider that A heavier individual is going to burn more calories, not necessarily at rest, but when they're moving around, you know? So when Jack and I go for a walk, right? I'm around 57 kilograms right now, Jack's around 90 kilograms right now. If we both go for the exact same walk in the park and we do the exact same number of steps, Jack being 33 kilograms heavier than me is going to require a lot more energy to move his body compared to me. So, you know, a larger person certainly does require more energy just to maintain a larger body mass. And another thing that we have to consider is that... It's the same
1: reason as why overweight people need to... You don't see an overweight person who doesn't eat much, like unless there's a special circumstance, even though they like to claim that I'm overweight because my metabolism is yeah. damaged or whatever, but yeah, you it's, don't see someone who's 200 kilos, not eating much. Exactly.
0: Because you know, the amount of energy that it takes to move a 200 kilogram body, think about standing up out of a chair. You've basically just done a 200 kilogram squat, right? So that requires a hell of a lot of energy, but we digress again. <laughs> but I think something that people really need to take into consideration is that people who are super duper muscly train freaking hard. And I know there's literature out there to say that, you know, oh, the average person only burns 150 calories or 300 calories or something during a resistance training session. But I don't know. I just, I find a really hard time believing that in terms of bodybuilders. You know, if you think about a 90 kilogram bodybuilder who loves training high volume, right. And he's in the gym for like two and a half hours, absolutely busting his butt. You know, he's sweating like crazy. Like I just have a or she, you know, I could be 90 (laughs) kilograms one day, who knows. (laughs) But the thing is, is that Like, Jack, wouldn't you argue that someone who is very big, very muscly, you know, training really fricking hard, they must be burning more calories than that, you know, compared to these test subjects that they've just done and, you know, wrote, written these papers on.
1: Mm. Yeah, I do find it hard to believe. And I think that a lot of the subjects that are tested on, like they are low volume, like Mm -hmm. they might be closer to the 10, like in a weekly volume, closer to the 10 sets per body part per week. And another factor as well that we don't consider is like, sometimes I rack up 5,000 steps in the gym, which is like almost my whole daily steps. <laughs> uh, that actually brings us to question one again, but <laughs> uh, yeah. And purely because I'm walking to different equipment, walking to the bathroom um, and the rest of the day, I'm fairly sedentary. So yeah.
0: And it's a massive gym as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess, yes, at rest, per kilogram of muscle, you will only burn an additional 13 calories, but that's not to say that super muscly people still don't require more calories for many other reasons. And I also just wanted to mention one last thing, which I think is super interesting, because when we're thinking about muscle, you know, like we've said, it only burns an additional 13 calories per day per kilogram of muscle, but muscle compared to other bodily tissues and bodily organs actually doesn't burn nearly as much energy per kilogram of tissue. So for example, your kidneys and your heart per kilogram of that tissue are actually burning around an additional 400 calories per day each right and the liver per kilogram of tissue is actually burning an additional 200 calories per day so the liver the kidneys the heart they are much more metabolically active at rest compared to your muscles because we have to think about the functions of those organs right they need to be going all day every day you know doing their job in order to maintain life so they are absolutely integral they're so important and they require a hell of a lot of energy and not to mention the brain per kilogram of brain tissue that burns around 240 calories per day so still a humongous amount right relative to per kilogram of muscle And this is in comparison to other tissues. So for example, adipose tissue, adipose tissue per kilogram is only burning around four calories per day, right? But at the same time, we also have to consider the total mass of these things on our body. So sure, you know, the kidneys and the heart per kilogram of tissue, it might burn an additional 400 calories per day. But when we think about someone's total amount of muscle mass, so let's say that an individual had 50 kilograms of muscle mass on them, and each kilogram of that is burning 13 calories, that in itself is 650 calories. So it's still a greater amount of energy overall.
1: Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, kind can't have 50 kilos of brain tissue.
0: Dude, my head would be huge. <laughs> Literally, my head would explode. But I may just be the smartest person on the planet. So not the musliest, but the smartest.
1: <laughs> and the most special as well. <laughs> so we have two questions coming up, which are fairly related. The first one says, how early on should you look into getting a coach for competition prep? And this is a very individual question. And it does depend on a number of factors, probably... First and foremost is what sort of body composition do you have um, leading into a competition prep and what division do you want to compete in? Because if you want to do bikini versus something like figure or men's fitness versus bodybuilding, they require different muscularity, different conditioning levels as well. So it's not as easy as just saying, okay, 25 weeks for everyone, because what if someone only has two or three kilos left to lose? Or what if someone has... Uh, thirty kilos left to lose. It's going to depend. So that's why we really recommend not getting to a. We recommend not getting coming to a coach purely for the prep. We'd recommend coming at least like ten to fifteen weeks before a prep would start. So preferably even up to a year before, or at least six months before.
0: I say the more time, the better, right? Mm. And considering you know bodybuilding, you're in this for the long game, so. The longer that you can work with a coach you know and really spend years developing your physique the better
1: and even if you come just for a consult or um, just a check-in then that's also very important as well because of course, some people finances are a issue in terms of paying for a coach full time. But I don't think you should use that as an excuse because you can just have a consult and it'll avoid you rocking up to a coach and speaking to them for the first time and then them saying, oh, sorry, we don't really recommend you doing this season because you're not in a good enough position, mm-hmm. which is a reality for a lot of people, especially first time competitors. So yeah.
0: And if they have a good and honest coach who isn't going to just you know take their money and just push them through a terrible prep trying to get them in shape when it was just a responsible decision in the first place and they should have waited a little bit longer.
1: Mm. So, yeah, and we also uh, did a post on TBD, our Instagram, and that was basically addressing this question as well. We have a a flick through of all of our competitors as well, so we definitely recommend checking that out. The second question is also where to start when looking for a coach for comp prep. So what what would you look for when looking for a coach
0: well i'd certainly want to look for someone who is reputable you know and holds a high standard for themselves and the success of their clients in the industry certainly someone with credentials who is evidence-based you know who is known for yes getting people into contest prep shape but also still treating their health as a top priority, both their physical and mental health, you know, and making sure that they take care of them and that their, their clients have an enjoyable experience, you know, so don't be afraid to talk to, you know, other competitors and ask them about, you know, what was your experience like working with this person? Because you kind of want to know, you know, what you're setting yourself up for. I wouldn't recommend just you know, going onto the internet or going onto Instagram or something and just looking up a comp prep coach and just clicking the very first one kind of thing, you really want some background information. So certainly do your research in that sense. And I think another huge thing is just communication and how do you and this coach get along? And that's something that is absolutely huge because, you know, a client coach relationship it's so important that there is just total transparency there, you know, there's, there's total honesty, you know, you trust your coach and you also feel very comfortable being open with them and questioning them. And, you know, like just, there's just an honest, open line of communication. Like that is humongous to me. And that's something that I always really strive to have with all of my clients, you know, I want them to feel so open and comfortable about talking to me about absolutely anything and not feeling like they're going to be judged or something. They just, they just truly want help.
1: Yeah. Everyone will be a different style of learner or thinker or doer, and there's not really a good or bad. It's just how people are. So for example, someone might be, tell me what to do and I'll do it. and sure that that's not bad if it's it makes things quite simple but there'll be someone else probably closer to me and tiara who will discuss each point that the coach makes and ask them why they're doing it which we still highly encourage as well and we we tell all of our clients if if you have something to say or if you have a question or if you disagree with anything then by all means say it because like that's just communication and that's It's probably like the number one important thing in coaching.
0: Yeah. There's nothing more than I love than when my clients ask me a question that really, really makes me think even like, honestly, I love it when I don't even have an immediate answer. And I'm like, I'm really going to think about this and I'm going to get back to you with my absolute best response. Like I love being put on my feet and really being able to critically analyze something and think about something. But Yeah, certainly what you said, Jack, like having a coach who has emotional intelligence, I think that is really, really important too.
1: Mm, Definitely.
0: And I've got a question for you, Jack, and I think I'm interested to hear your response. So do you think that it is mandatory for a comp prep coach to be a current or past or future competitor themselves?
1: I definitely think that a comp prep coach should have at least uh, performed a comp prep once. However, like I don't think they need to be an astounding bodybuilder or a, I definitely think they shouldn't be a future competitor because that means they wouldn't have competed, mm-hmm. but they don't need to be an astounding bodybuilder or someone with, ex, uh, with an amazing physique because like the reality is we all know someone who has an amazing physique who is not evidence based. Yes. <laughs> so uh, and and we know people as well who are very evidence based who don't have a great physique because at the end of the day so much of it depends on genetics and and how people respond. So like someone in the gym cuz like you could have be not evidence based, still do a heap of volume in the gym, not get injured, still be progressing in strength and you're going to grow muscle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's you're you're using like the correct uh, volume and intensity guidelines and etc. So hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. I certainly think it is important that a coach has gone through a prep at least once because gosh, it's just such a journey, you know, and you never truly know what it's really like until you're in the depths of it. So I think that's so important to actually be able to relate to your clients when they tell you like, this is getting really tough. And you can honestly say, I know, I know it's getting tough. I know how tough it is, but you just got to keep going because it is a hell of a lot easier said than done. And Mm. you need to be able to understand what someone's going through when they're near the end of a comp prep.
1: Yeah. And also in the opposite of that as well, because you know how tough it is, you know, not to go too hard because one is can be just unnecessary, but two, like, There's just an amount of suffering that is just unnecessary and like you, yeah, I'm not really explaining myself very well, but you would, you know, when to pull back as opposed to keep pushing because keeping pushing will, will not be good.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So this next question is how often do you guys consume alcohol slash get a little drunk?
0: Ooh, (laughs) uh, not very often.
1: (laughs) Yeah, not often at all, to be honest.
0: Yeah, we're um we're more of the kind of like Netflix and chill kind of couple. <laughs> mm. When was the last time we drank? It would have been Thailand last year, right?
1: Well, it depends. Depends what the quota of alcohol is. Yeah. To, okay. To so drink.
0: we had a f- like we went to Club Med in Thailand last year. Amazing trip, right? And Club Med, it's all it's like open bar. It's all free alcohol, right? And. We certainly didn't take advantage of that because we don't really, you know, engage in that sort of lifestyle. But we did try a few, you know, alcoholic drinks that we'd never had before. So, you know, we ordered like an espresso martini and these other, you know, little like sweet drinks or something like that. And we like had a few sips of each one just to try them because they were free. But certainly didn't get drunk and crunk
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah probably the last time we had alcohol in excess would have been probably 2017 at the ball
0: yeah we went to the ball that year and yeah like the pub crawl that year man it's been a few years hasn't it but Mm. i don't know it (laughs) it doesn't appeal to me i feel like the older i get the more i love country music and the less i love like going out drinking and partying like and (laughs) I'm only 22, but hey, that's just me.
1: (laughs) Tara also got very excited about this new mop that we bought as well.
0: (laughs) You were excited (laughs) about the mop.
1: (laughs) Oh, were you the vacuum cleaner? I was
0: was excited about the vacuum cleaner. (laughs) Oh, gosh. But yeah, honestly, I don't know. Just drinking doesn't really appeal to me that much. Like, I love the life that I live. I genuinely love feeling sober and feeling healthy and just feeling energetic and just like being able to live my life i'm in love with my life so yeah getting drunk and you know sacrificing whole sundays and stuff and having headaches it just it's not for me it's not for me but that's not to say i'll never drink again in my life but yeah i don't know not right now
1: (laughs) yeah not right now (laughs) not anywhere in the future i guess
0: dude i am like a pretty low body fat right now in prep like I don't even, I can't even imagine. I'd probably only need like one or two drinks to get a bit of woohoo.
1: <laughs> um, do we know for certain that that's actually a thing?
0: I think so. I was already a lightweight and now I'm even lighter. So I'll be like a light lightweight.
1: <laughs> anyway, moving on to the next question. This one says, what are your pre-comp superstitions?
0: Superstitions. So is this like pre-comp rituals?
1: I think so. Yeah. Do you have any? i'll let you go first <laughs>
0: Ooh, um okay a pre-comp ritual i'd say that on the morning of comp day i love listening to my favorite band lord huron i don't know i just I, I i love lord huron and there's something about driving to the competition and listening to all my favorite happy songs that's that's always nice um oh what else
1: what about a pre-comp dump oh
0: <laughs> is that a superstition or is that just like that's just lucky if you can go to the bathroom before stage
1: Mm, it's luck or skill i guess
0: yes it's skill yeah depend on those bowels on that morning (laughs) is so is that a superstition one of your rituals to take a dump
1: well i I was just assuming it was one of yours what
0: the heck (laughs) can it be one of ours sure okay cool (laughs)
1: Well, I think Lord Huron would be ours anyway, because one of us is, we're always in the car together. Yeah,
0: but what about, so next, well, I'm competing this season, so if you were competing, would you still listen to Lord Huron? Mm, Probably not. What would you listen to?
1: Uh, It would probably be something more aggressive, like uh, heavy metal.
0: Okay, do you have a specific song in mind?
1: No. Okay. (laughs)
0: Uh, Okay. Something
1: like Linkin Park or... Uh, yeah or heavier than that okay I, I prevail as a good band
0: so I guess when when I'm competing it's all happy rainbows and sunshines and guitars and Jacks is like guys screaming in the car. I am just.
1: <laughs> I find at that, that stage of comp prep though, like the music doesn't do much. It doesn't elicit a response for me.
0: Are you kidding? Oh, yeah. it's the exact opposite for me. Like I need music to get psyched up and to just, you know, feel a beat and just get really excited. Like mm-hmm. I love feeling the rhythm. Like I can't, I can't list like work out or drive in silence. I need to be moving yeah.
1: Well, you're good at talking though in the car.
0: Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> and singing. <laughs> okay. Other pre-comp superstitions. Like, is there anything that you would pump up with like backstage, like a specific thing you'd eat or?
1: Not really. Yeah. I don't, I think the more that I'll compete, I'll probably develop them, but so far it's not much.
0: Well, did you do anything twice last time?
1: there are certain pump up exercises I like to do. Um, but, and there are even more now that I've had more time off. Like I, I know a lot, a, quite a few exercises now that I'm get, definitely going to do because I notice that they, like, for example, I know this one exercise, which I'm going to keep a secret, but it, it pumps up my lats really well.
0: <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> This secret lateral exercise. <laughs> uh, what about something you eat? You know, like, do you have a special type of candy you want to pump up with or like, A special type of meal or breakfast you'll always eat?
1: Yeah, the honest answer is that I'm not really sure because yeah, there haven't been too many times and we'll find out at the end of next season it will be another good question to ask but I'll always have a salt shot. I'll probably always have some candy. I'll definitely always have potatoes. (laughs) I'll probably have a flour cake the morning next time I compete. But we'll find out next time.
0: Okay. (laughs) So I guess everyone at least knows now that you are uh, a bit superstitious when it comes to taters. Yep. Mm -hmm.
1: And not much else at the moment. (laughs) But what are you superstitious about?
0: I wouldn't say I'm necessarily superstitious about anything, but I guess my pre-pump-up meal, my favorite thing to have is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on raisin bread. I just... I love that. I feel like it brings out my inner child, like eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And um, I don't know, it's just an awesome high carb meal. Put a little bit of salt on there and it's a good time. So PB and J on comp day. it's it's always good.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Can't go wrong.
0: Cannot go wrong. But other than that, you know, not many superstitions. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yep, just like me, I guess.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like I don't like spray my heels with some sort of funky lavender or you know, like I don't know, smell my armpit twice or something like
1: Or use a exact nail parlor or buy a certain brand of fake eyelashes. No.
0: Or... If anything, no. <laughs> I did my own fake nails for the competition on the weekend. It was $7.50 and I just stuck them on because Dude, I swear to God, when I wear fake nails, like, I'm just immediately handicapped. Like, I can't do anything with my hands anymore. So, I don't know how people, like, wear those all the time. Like, I just feel like I'd have claws. Like, <laughs> I can't lift weights with those things. <laughs> and I certainly ain't paying, like, 60 bucks to have them on. So, yeah, I just did it myself.
1: <laughs> Save money where you can. Competing is expensive.
0: Competing is expensive. So, yeah, certainly... If you don't mind, you know, buy your own fake nails and buy your jewelry from like Kmart and Target. As long as it shimmers, you know, no one really knows.
1: (laughs) I could tell, but
0: hey, (laughs) you could tell how damn good Target's jewelry is.
1: (laughs) Anyway, that that wraps up our final podcast question. Other than the one we always ask, which is something that we learned this week. So, Tiara, hit the floor. What did you learn?
0: Ooh, mine's probably just going to be short and sweet, you know, because this past weekend, I did compete for the first time in my very first IFBB show. So I guess this past week, I just learned what it feels like to step on an IFBB stage and boy, what an experience. It was so exhilarating, but man, one that I absolutely loved and I can't wait to do it all again and just two weeks from now, like just over two weeks, we'll be in Melbourne for the Arnold. So, oh gosh, I can't wait. So that's what I learned this week is just how to really be an IFBB bikini athlete up on stage.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. It it was an incredible experience for me as well, watching you and watching how the show was run and... Yeah, it, it was a great show and a lot of sitting down though, about 10 hours worth yeah, of that. Yeah,
0: I know. That's the thing. I don't know if they just care about the bikini girls the least, but like bikini girls are always on last, man. Like they put every other category. Well, like, they
1: can know that everyone will stay for the bikini. So they end up getting the largest crowd.
0: <laughs> I think it's the opposite. I think they were, they were worried. I think they, they okay, know well, a bunch um, of people will show up for the bodybuilders, but Hey, you know, there, there was a big crowd, which was good.
1: Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I would say it was probably even bigger than... No, it wasn't, no. Not, <laughs> no. no bigger than what
0: Bigger than what, Jack? Bodybuilders. Oh, thank God. Anyway, uh, Jack, what did you learn this week?
1: So I learned about an IFBB show as well. We did go to one in September as well, but this one was definitely... I stayed for the whole thing. I went into the coaches area as well, backstage, saw how it's all set up and how it differs from, let's say, like ICN, And yeah, undoubtedly, I'll have clients competing in IFBB in the future. You'll be competing with IFBB again. Maybe in 10 years, I'll be competing with IFBB. So (laughs) like it is valuable. Classic
0: physique. Here we come.
1: (laughs) So it is valuable to know how it's run and how it differs to the other organizations because you want things to go smoothly for your clients and for yourself. So yeah, it still was a great experience.
0: So what would you say were the biggest differences between IFBB and ICM?
1: Well, there's quite a lot of differences in terms of how they do it. So, for example, like they do the T-walk for the bikini and for men's physique as well. They do the posing routines for bodybuilders uh, and for the equivalent for females. Uh, they have a few different categories for females as well. So, quite a lot.
0: And unfortunately, Jack wasn't able to come backstage with me for free. We had to pump out 150 bucks for a coach's pass to get Jack backstage with me, which... I just thought was crazy, right? Like, mm. boy, <laughs>
1: Yeah, everyone runs differently, but yeah, it basically meant that anyone could go backstage as long as you paid 150 bucks.
0: Yeah, it's insane, but it also explains why there were basically only competitors backstage. There yeah. were hardly any coaches, mm.
1: <laughs> which is yeah, good as well because like it wasn't very crowded at all. It was mm-hmm. much yeah ICN is a lot more crowded.: Oh, ICN's
0: that. crazy. Yeah, it was very calm back there, compared, which mm. was nice. <laughs> yeah cool
1: awesome so that wraps up the 64th episode and as per usual if you did enjoy what you're listening to please remember to repost it onto your instagram stories tag myself tag tiara tag the bodybuilding dietitians and we'll see you guys next week